0: We begin today, the 10th session in the Leaven of Liturgy. We've worked our way through to the canon, and today, uh, rather than diving right into the wording of the canon, we're going to talk about what actually the canon is about, what's happening in this portion of liturgy, and what at least the Anglican theology of consecration really is, especially... Discussing discussing real presence, it's a very important issue, and it is uh, in the fog of war of the Reformation. More controversy over what the consecration means uh, was was really struggled through than probably any other issue. Uh, Unfortunately, a sacrament of communion, which is meant to unify people together, has become a very divisive subject. It's important for us to not try to contribute to further division. However, uh, we do have a position, which is pretty good, I think. So we'll, we'll hear about that in just a moment. First of all, we shall pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. We're going to break this uh, section up into uh, two or three portions. It's actually quite appropriate that we deal with the consecration and the canon during the season of Advent, which means coming. So here is Christ's real presence in the sacrament, essentially occurring, or his Advent to us sacramentally each week takes place at this moment. It's it's an important uh, and I think providential thing that we're doing this beginning today on Advent 1. So we'll talk about, first of all, about the word canon, you see here a ruler. Anybody familiar with the, what the, uh, the meaning of the word canon is? Canon means measure or rule. So, for instance, when a, a clergyman comes for his canonical examination, he's going to be measured. When the church has canons and constitution, the canons are the measure of the church, essentially the rule uh, the measuring stick, in a, in a sense, this is the, the I would say, the, the fullest measure of the liturgy happens here. As on page 80 and 81 of the, at least the 1928 American Book of Common Prayer, these two pages are called the Canon of the Mass or Holy Communion or Eucharist, however you want to say it, and are really at the heart of the Holy Communion liturgy. Everything we've been doing to this point has been in preparation for all of the, uh, the, well, everything we've been doing up to this point, the nine sessions before this one. I'm not going to try and list them all <laughs> because I'll miss one. However, uh, these two pages are really at the heart of the liturgy for Holy Communion. This is, in a sense, the rule, the measure. Uh, if a clergyman was to show up at a, uh, at a hospital visit and had no consecrated host or chalice, no consecrated bread or wine. The body and blood of Christ were not present. He could skip every part of the liturgy except this. He could also, if, uh, well, he, if he's going to administer the sacrament, he can't skip the confession and absolution. But if if these are not consecrated elements, he cannot skip this portion. This is essential to Holy Communion. So, before this portion of the liturgy, the bread and wine are treated as bread and wine. Afterwards, they are treated as the body and blood of Christ. And they are the body and blood of Christ. We'll talk about that in just a moment. You'll see this in the way that the altar guild treats the cruets and the chalices, you'll see it in the way if you watch closely, that especially if a mistake is made amongst the acolytes and the clergy, it depends on which portion of the liturgy the mistake is made for what needs to happen. If these elements have not been consecrated and someone drops the cruet and it breaks all no, oh, I shouldn't even say it breaks all over the ground. There's wine everywhere and broken glass. If you do that at the beginning of the service, that's no problem. We can get a mop out and you know clean it up. If it has been the the crew, it wouldn't be wouldn't be consecrated. But if the chalice is spilled after consecration, we have a big problem. That's a massive problem. That's why you will never, at a normal church with sane clergy, have a clergyman hand you the chalice and take his hand off of it. Never, 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 never. <laughs> If I'm administering the chalice, my hand is locked onto that chalice, and you can try to take it from me if you want, and I'll pull it back and go to the next person. But You're allowed to place your hands on the bottom and the side and guide it to your lips so that none may be spilled, but uh, you're not going to get that chalice out of my hand. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, The hosts are easier to to clean up if there's a problem, but uh, the chalice is really not that easy. So, When we're talking about uh, our theology, we we say the words real presence. And if you want to know the theology of it, it's really simple. And yet, at the same time, incomprehensibly profound. And where would you get uh, that incomprehensibly profound and simple theology? From Christ himself, who simply says, this is my body. He says it while he's in his body, holding out a piece of bread, saying, this is my body. And the disciples could have easily said, no, that's not your body. That's bread. Your body is holding the bread out. Instead, he's, they don't say anything. They agree. Somehow, this is my body. It's a very literal interpretation if you're into literally interpreting the scripture, we're about, that's about as literal as you can get. It's very ironic that some churches that take the scripture literal, 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 get to that verse and say metaphorical, symbolic. Well, hold on, hold on. It was literal up until that point. That in some way is literal. That, that in a mystical way is his real presence. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus institutes the sacrament as a fulfillment of his words. Except ye eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Think of how incomprehensible that was. Before the institution of this sacrament, he said those words. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Which means God is not averse to telling you something you couldn't possibly understand and then giving you the understanding of it later. Could that be what's happening here? Uh, how does this work? Bad question. Did he say it? That's a better question. Yes, he did. Do we have the freedom to say, well, what he didn't really mean that. I don't think we have the freedom to say that. If he said, this is my body, then somehow it's his body. And that's the way we treat it. If you want some reference to this, let's go back to almost the first century, the second century. Justin Martyr writes... In his first apology, uh, not apologizing, but in defense of the Christian faith. And this food, he's describing the liturgy and what happens in a Christian gathering, Christian service of worship. This food is called among us, the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true. In other words, you're a believer And who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins. You've been baptized. That's why we don't administer the sacrament to people who haven't been baptized. Because that is the most ancient tradition of the church. And unto regeneration. And who is so living as Christ has enjoined. In other words, you're not a notorious and evil person. We've covered that uh, at another time. For not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh by the word of God, hath both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise have we been taught, taught in the second century, which means the original apostles or even those who they taught, taught him that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are <laughs> nourished is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. If you want to say, uh, I wish we could get back to the early church where everything was symbolic, you have some other early church. That's not this early church. This is the actual early church, and they believe this is the body and blood of Christ under the form of bread and wine. But essential to the consecration, okay? In the Western church, it has been the words of institution Historically that are at the heart of this consecration liturgy that is Jesus is saying this is my body repeated by the the priest and the realist theology comes from these words also by realist I mean not metaphorical or merely symbolic just the simple fact that he said this is that's realist theology. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it has not been the words of institution so much as the invocation of the Holy Spirit, also called the Epiclesis. We also, well, I'll get to that in a second. You've heard of the Holy Spirit called the Paraclete, one who is called alongside. In this sense, the Epiclesis is, he is called down upon. Epi is upon. Klesis is called. So the Epiclesis, is where the Holy Spirit is called down upon. The Eastern Orthodox Church finds that to be essential. The Western Church has always found the words of institution to be essential. Wouldn't it be great if there was a Holy Communion liturgy somewhere in this world, in the English language, that contained both the words of institution and an epiclesis? Wouldn't that be great? It would just be ideal. Why, there is. (laughs) Where, you ask? In the 1928 American Book of Common Prayer, just so happens. Uh, Yeah, it was a setup. It was a t ball. But page 80, page 81, there is the words of institution and an epiclesis right there, um, which is part of the reason that when the Eastern Orthodox first came to North America through Alaska, St. Tikhon needed an English liturgy and found that the 1928 Book of Common Prayer fit quite nicely. He changed just a few words, and the Orthodox were happy because there was both an epiclesis and the words of institution. We actually have the liturgy of St. Ticon in the Missal on the altar. Just a piece of historical information there. Uh, but in terms of sacramental validity, sometimes the, the the idea of sacramental validity doesn't cross the mind of a, of a person in the church, but it's kind of... Uh, what do you call it, inside baseball. This is what the clergy are all concerned about. Whether you understand it or not is kind of not the point. The bishops, the priests, and the deacons have been tasked with preserving the validity of the sacraments. You should be able to come to church and assume that everything's okay, okay? You don't have to go to seminary to come to church. You just have to come to church. But a valid sacrament, in case you're interested... Requires a proper minister. We've already talked about ordination and apostolic succession. A proper subject, that would be a baptized believer who is not a notorious and evil person, who is also not a pet or a robot or something other than a human being made in the image and likeness of God. Okay, so if anyone's ever tempted to take the sacrament home and give it to their bird or something like that. That is a sacrilege, we would say. You can't do that. That is improper subject. Proper subject is a baptized believing person. Proper matter, bread and wine. Not gluten-free. Gluten-free is no longer bread. Not Cheez-Its, not beer, not non-alcoholic grape juice, is that what your hand is up for? <laughs> okay. Uh, the same things that Jesus used, we're to use. Bread and wine. The Orthodox in the West have an uh, argument over leavened or unleavened, but hit me. Well, Paul, yes. uh, at a previous church, there were some individuals who specifically requested uh, gluten-free right. bread and they were provided such. And they, I just wonder why you would do so because if you're trusting that element to be blessed and, and, right. and so forth, why would you think it would be harmful? My bishop and I would also wonder why would you do that? However, there is such a thing as low-gluten hosts. You can get low-gluten. But if you are absolutely gluten intolerant, just receive from the chalice. You're okay. Um, but... a. In my humble opinion, and the bishops, you should not provide gluten-free hosts in the same way that I should not switch out wine for Orange Crush. It, it's not, it, you know, it, it's the proper matter. That's what, and the proper intention is to consecrate. Okay? That's not too hard. And it's really not the intention of the individual. It's the intention of the church. So you may have a priest who is confused. It actually doesn't matter if he's confused. It would be better if he wasn't. But it's the intention of the church and proper form. The form is what we're talking about here. Words of institution, epiclesis, that's proper form. Minister, subject, matter, intention, form. We're going to go down the line. Now, with a valid priesthood, that's the minister. Baptized communicants, that's proper subject. Bread and wine, the proper matter. With the intent to consecrate, that's a proper intention. Using the words of institution as well as the invocation of the Holy Spirit, proper form. The human part in the sacrament has been done. Once this uh, page 80, 80 and 81 of the consecration is done, we're done. The rest is left to God. But would Christ really be present, even in a valid sacrament? If we had done everything that we were asked to do, that the tradition of the church had handed us to do, and that we found in the church fathers to teach us to do, would Christ really be present? What does St. Paul say? Let's read about what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and see if we can, uh, what do you call it, reverse engineer for I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. We'll get to the word remembrance. After the same manner also he took the cup, which uh, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death until he come. And some may read that and say, yeah, but that's not what he means. That couldn't be what he means. What he means by remembrance is recall, bring to mind, think about. Very cerebral, very uh, enlightenment way of thinking. Not, he, does not, he doesn't mean this is my body, this is my blood. He means we're going to recall, remember like... I remember having pumpkin pie this week. I can't remember the day. It was probably Thanksgiving. Remember. That's not the remember. This is the remember that is the opposite of dismember. Remember is to put back together again and make present. The word is anamnesis. The Greek word, there's no good English translation for, which is the cause of much suffering. Anyhow, the passage goes on. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of remembering him incorrectly. Nope. <laughs> shall be guilty of having a poor memory. No. Shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That can't be right. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. We're getting much, much more realist here. This is St. Paul speaking of realness of this sacrament. It's not simply remembering incorrectly, recalling wrong, or something like that. And he even says this, which is hardly repeated For this cause, many of you are weak and sickly, and many sleep, in other words, die. Now, that's something, okay? That's a physical implication that St. Paul puts on the Christians in Corinth who have not eaten and drunk the body and blood of Christ worthily. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among And you. Say, well, that's where St. Paul and I disagree. Okay. (laughs) You disagree with St. Paul. All right, well, the church doesn't, so... Yeah, that's... uh, as we're, as we're speaking of St. Paul, we have to ask ourselves, unless Christ were really present, how could recalling him unworthily make one guilty of the body and blood of Christ? How could recalling him unworthily and only at that particular moment, because if you're just recalling, well, you could recall him unworthily all, all week long. You could re- wake up in the morning and think something wrong of Christ. If we're just thinking of him, But there's something about that moment with the body and blood. If he was not really present, how could that moment alone bring condemnation? And why would not discerning the body and blood of Christ bring damnation, specifically at a moment of eating and drinking, if Christ wasn't really present, as he said, this is my body, this is my blood. I'm just saying... If you're searching for a scriptural uh, passage that bolsters this idea, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and St. Paul seems to assume it. And so do the earliest church fathers, as I read you from St. Justin, uh, Justin Martyr. Then the question becomes, well, how is Christ present then? We would say spiritually, and you'd say, oh, I see, spiritually, not real, <laughs> spiritually, which is really, okay, and objectively, not subjectively. In other words, um, I, I had an experience with the Lord today. You didn't. I did. It was subjective. It was in my heart. What we would say is that Christ is present regardless of whether your heart was strangely warmed or not. Christ is present either way. Christ is present if you're a cold, notorious, evil liver. He's still present. Christ is present if you are wide open to receive him and the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not subjective, uh, affected by each person's individual state. He's objectively present. How his objective presence uh, affects you is much the same as how his objective presence affects Affected people in the Gospels differently. Some were willing to follow him immediately. Some wanted him dead. He was objectively present, and there were different responses to that objective presence. And spiritually, I've, it's a very Enlightenment way of thinking of saying, spiritually, oh, that's not real. If, if you're a, a Christian and have been reading the New Testament, you'll know that spiritually is real. He is spiritually present. What do you mean by, by that? How is this sacrament, the body and blood of Christ, when if we took it under a microscope, we would find that it remains bread and wine? Well, we simply believe what Jesus said and how the historic church has interpreted what he said. This is my body. I am really present. That's real presence theology. And it's a bit of a a 10,000 foot perspective but that's what he gives us. So we take that. What about transubstantiation? Anybody uh, coming to, a, to an Anglican church from a, a more Protestant uh, tradition will say, do you believe in transubstantiation? Actually, the, uh, people coming from the Roman tradition would say the same thing. Do you believe in transubstantiation? And here we are. At the, this is the Fourth Lateran Council um, in the 13th century. And that's Pope Innocent III there uh, making uh, declarations. So the question, do we believe in transubstantiation, should be followed by, with the question, wait, what is transubstantiation? <laughs> because I would say most people, when they use that word, don't know what it means. And I would say even the church that holds vehemently to transubstantiation, most of them don't know what that means. What it does not mean, but is popularly understood to mean is that under a microscope, this is now flesh. And this is now type O negative, I don't know, blood. This is now, you know, uh, been changed into flesh and blood in that sense. Do you believe in transubstantiation? I would say 80% of the time people mean that, but that has never been what transubstantiation means. You ready? What does it mean? Okay. It is an Aristotelian notion of substance, transubstantiation, and accident. So you have your philosophy class today. You ready? (laughs) This is Aristotle. And a little bit of history behind Aristotle. So Aristotle was essentially lost to the Western world until the Crusades. uh, When... uh, Islam came through North Africa in the seventh and eighth century and cleared out the libraries. They basically took Aristotelian philosophy, and it existed in the Islamic world until the uh, Crusades, when Aristotle was recovered to the West. Okay, his philosophy of substance and accident was read very carefully in the twelfth century and in the 13th century applied to Christian theology and declared to be the theology of the church. It's Aristotle and the New Testament mixed together. Uh, Which is, uh, to give you a quick answer, which is why the Anglicans and the Eastern Orthodox don't hold to transubstantiation really, because it's Greek philosophy applied to the church. And I would say that Jesus didn't need Aristotle for the sacrament to be valid. <laughs> he just said this is my body. And so what he said we believe. That's it. It's it's much more of a it's a much more simple interpretation. But transubstantiation simply means this. Okay, you have a chair. You're all sitting in a chair. The chair you are sitting in, the particular chair you're sitting in is the accident of a chair. Don't take away from the word accident the car crash. That's not the car crash. This is a particular chair, one chair, that chair. The one that Sophia is sitting on, that chair right there. That's the accident of that chair. But there is chairness, substance, okay? Not a particular chair, but the idea of chair. Like when you're thinking chair, there's a million different kinds of chairs that fit into that category, but they're all a chair. That's the substance of chair, But the particular of chair is the accident, okay? That's the accident of chair. The substance and accident of consecrated bread, this is the real question of transubstantiation, okay? At the consecration, the bread remains its accident, bread. It still remains bread. But the substance of the bread has become the body of Christ, In other words, the substance has changed. Trans substance, transubstantiation. Does your church believe in transubstantiation? Well, you'd have to first of all ask, does your church believe in Aristotle? You know, it's a question that it's hard to answer because why is it essential to believe in Aristotle? The disciples didn't understand Aristotle. What do you mean by that? Is the better question. Anyway. Uh, so when we're talking about real presence, Anglicans typically resist the substance accident distinction of Greek philosophy imposed on Christ's words and actions. But Anglicans have also typically believed, along with the Eastern Orthodox, that transubstantiation only errs in having said too much. They've made metaphysical distinctions that actually are not warranted in the New Testament not that the position is necessarily wrong, because to say that it's wrong is to say too much. Because how do you know? How do you know that it isn't substance, accident? You don't really know. You can't say it isn't, and you can't say it is. Very Anglican position. <laughs> do you believe in transubstantiation? Can't answer it. It's, uh, it's definitely not a hill to die on. Real presence is a hill to die on. Because that's what Justin Martyr was talking about in the second century. He said, we simply believe that what he said it is, it is. That's all. <laughs> you could believe in transubstantiation and not be doing anything wrong. That's perfectly fine. Um, and so that's why once again you, you have a hard time answering the question. The the articles of religion in the 39 articles of the church condemn transubstantiation, but they condemned the popular understanding of transubstantiation, which even in, the, even in the 16th century had been that it's flesh and blood, a bloody sacrifice on the altar. That is not what is believed. And actually in the 13th century, they didn't believe that either. So uh, it's kind of a boogeyman. But anyway, we're getting close to the end of our material here. There's a little bonus material, but we'll be ready for questions in a second. But the canon begins all glory be to the almighty God, our heavenly father, for that thou of thy tender mercy didst give thine only son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. Notice how there's nothing metaphorical there. There's nothing he gave. Well, not really gave his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death. Well, not really death on a cross. Well, not really a cross, you know, you know, the spirit, the spirit of the thing. Uh, By his one oblation of himself once offered... Well, not really once offered. You know, know, uh, there's no hemming and hawing at this portion. A full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. One time. And there's no hemming and hawing there. And the very next thing that comes are the words of institution. And that no hemming and hawing spirit is the same spirit with which we interpret the next portion, the actual words of institution. No hemming and hawing, for in the night in which he was betrayed, well, not really a night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, well, it wasn't really bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. Well, not really my body. There's no hemming and hawing. We don't hem and haw the whole time. And so this is, uh, this is what the canon is really about. This is what it is affecting and in the end, why it is so protected and so um, cherished. Why you can't just come out with a new prayer book every, every five years. And why when the church, at first opportunity to nail down liturgy in the fourth century, started doing it right away. Started getting it. Let's get all the priests to say the same thing if we can um, that's the canon, uh, and this is, what did I call this? I didn't call it Words of Institution. I called it Real Presence and Consecration. So that's, uh, that's our section 10. I'm ready for questions or discussion, and I have a bonus piece of material to come in just a second. But any uh, thoughts on that? Yes, please. Uh, Catholic Church. Right. That right. But that's, the Roman church does not believe it to be a bloody sacrifice. No church. There was a portion of the Roman church in the 15th century that began to believe that. And, and, and there may be some, some priest somewhere that's teaching that. But that's not what transubstantiation means. It's a popular misunderstanding and I think some people get excited about it because they think, you know, uh, I don't know, this is more neat than it would be if it was if it was his body and blood, according to his saying, Jesus is saying. Um, but there, there, I know of. I'll just say I know of no church that believes that, and that's Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Lutheran, uh, Anglican. I don't know of anyone that, that actually has that theology. I, I know it's been misunderstood, but no one would actually uh, get to the tippy top of their church and find the bishops saying that. So. Absolutely, and it's a it's a funny, it's a very odd thing. And this is why I'm saying this as a sacrament of communion. We have found ways, devised ways to be divided over it. We have invented ways to be divided and uh it's a it's a headache it's a heartache um, and i don't know what else to do about it other than just keep teaching because I know that uh if you listen to e w t n and they and they have someone on there start uh describing. Transubstantiation, they'll talk about exactly what I just said. They'll talk about Aristotle, substance, accident. They'll talk about the Fourth Lateran Council. They'll talk about the Crusades and the re- rediscovery of Aristotle. They'll talk about all that, because that is the truth about transubstantiation. So, anyway. Yeah, I found listening to EWTN years ago was very interesting. It wasn't yeah. thought I was going to be. Yeah. You're about. No, it's a fine station to listen to. The only part that I really resist is they have this program called Coming Home or something like that, and it's all Anglicans that became Roman Catholic, <laughs> and how their lives were miserable as Anglicans, and then when they became Roman Catholic, all their answers came. I was like, oh, give me strength. Okay. You notice they only, they only interview one type of person. The person that went this way on the river, rather than the person that went the other way, because there's a number of people that went the other way and have found uh, life there too, so... Yes, Chris. So go back to sacrament, proper, and right. um, so on the subject, yep. is a person who becomes, or perhaps was born, a baptized person who right. becomes, or perhaps was born, non-compromis mentis, not- Who becomes student, what? Non-compromis In other words, not- Not being right. capable of- being oh, Okay. Do they, are they receiving a sacrament? Should they receive a sacrament? Or, or how does it work for them if they don't understand, and can't understand? First question, um, are they receiving a sacrament? Anyone who receives that sacrament is receiving a sacrament. Whether it, the question is whether it does you good or harm. Okay. If you receive unworthily, St. Paul says you receive to your own condemnation. If you receive, and you'll hear the exhortations, first Sunday of Advent, you hear the exhortation today. This is what I mean by objective and not subjective. It doesn't depend on the condition of the recipient, whether it's a valid sacrament or not, whether it's the body and blood of Christ. It has nothing to do with the person receiving. They're going to receive regardless. Okay, um, the answer of most of the church is you're responsible for what you can understand. Uh, and, and if... If a person receives having not fully understood sacramental theology, they can join the disciples. Because the disciples did not understand sacramental theology either. In that first room where Jesus said, this is my body, you cannot tell me that there was much going through their minds in terms of theological accuracy. They just believed this is his body and Jesus told me to do it. Do this in remembrance of me, not do this when you understand or do this if you feel like it. He said, do it. It's a a command. So in doing it, you are obeying the imperative. In understanding as much as you possibly can, I think you're being a good Christian. Um, If you, I mean, there's weird circumstances, I suppose, you refuse to understand. That's weird, you know, once you've found out what's being offered you, you res- refuse to receive. Okay, well, that's odd because if you call Jesus Lord and he tells you to do something and you don't do it, well, then he's not really Lord because he told you to do something and you didn't do it. If something else is your Lord. But anyway, um, what should you do? In our church, and I've been instructed by our bishops, that if someone understands some you administer to them, especially uh, like we, we had a, uh, a young lady in Atlanta who was, had a mental impairment, uh, but she was clearly as reverent as she could be. She understood as much as she could, and she was an adult. She was confirmed. And so uh, we would administer the sacrament to her. Uh, children is another question. Children is a hard one because each of the churches have had a different way of handling children. Children. Our typical way is to administer the sacrament only to confirmed children. But when people are visiting, it's, it's almost too much uh, to try and have a conversation like that at the altar rail. But uh, that, that's another uh, question that usually comes up about what if you don't fully understand. I always turn to the disciples and say, you telling me they understood? They didn't understand. Jesus was so frustrated with them for not understanding so many times when he gives them the most mystical and difficult thing to understand, you can't tell me they understood, but they were obedient and reverent. And in a sense, their hearts were genuflected to him. That's, I think, what is more at the, the heart of right reception of the sacrament. Any other questions or co- comments or thoughts? Bonus material, real quick. Um, some history... After the American Revolution, the English church first refused to consecrate American bishops. It was a fight, right? So, so I'm not going to consecrate your bishops, you jerks. Uh, it wasn't long before they were willing to. But Samuel Seabury, the first bishop of the uh, American Episcopal Church or the Episcopal Church of the United States, went to the Scottish non-jurors. That's a whole other... Uh, discussion, but bishops of Scotland and obtained consecration from them on one condition that the first American Book of Common Prayer, which which came out in 1789, would use the 1764 Scottish Canon, which is before you. Okay, this is the 1764 Scottish Canon that Samuel Seabury promised to use if they would consecrate him bishop so he could bring the episcopy, episcopacy, episcopacy to America. And thank the Lord, it's actually an excellent uh, piece of liturgy. The end. <laughs> <laughs> and next Sunday is sung morning prayer, and we'll resume Sunday after that. Farewell.